Hey everyone and welcome to another episode of the Convergence podcast. This is episode 46 and this will be the last episode released in 2021. A huge shout out to all the listeners of the podcast and the kind words of support and appreciation along the way. I also want to thank all the brilliant guests I've had the opportunity to talk to this year as I've learned so much through these conversations and I hope for continued support next year as well as we continue the podcast. Today's guest is Cody Ellingham, who is an amazing photographer currently based out of New Zealand, who has mastered the art of capturing cities and finding hidden stories and narratives within them. We spoke about the common themes he has observed during his travels, his philosophy about photography and color grading, as well as his various books such as Danchi Dreams and Bangkok Phosphors. This is a really fascinating conversation and I hope you all get a lot of value from it. So with that said, here is the last episode of the Convergence podcast for 2021. Let's go. I think just that idea of globalization versus having this decentralized connection online kind of puts into perspective just the way we started talking because you heard the episode with Stefan on the podcast and I had heard your conversation with Ash Thorpe a few years back but then we never actually knew each other and then just the chance connection of coming together to have a conversation is quite a fascinating thing yeah no i think there's a there's a serendipity you know with the way things are today you know you can kind of bump into people and and digitally connect um and, and make stuff happen and um i, I think it's it's a, one of the beautiful outcomes of this uh, of this internet uh, world connected world that we're, we live in yeah. absolutely and In fact, just looking at the kind of work that you've done over the years and looking back on the artworks that Stefan had put together for the book, there is some mm-hmm. sort of parallel between these two worlds of photography and the anime architecture because because of the locations that you were photographing especially. Yeah, I've got a I've actually got a copy of uh, Stefan's book here. Um I really love it. Um um I I think looking at my earliest work when I was living in Tokyo, I believe you know i was really fascinated with the past mm-hmm. you know and so tokyo and japan is is sort of in a way locked in time you know there's a quite a lot of stuff there from the 70s and 80s um that was sort of the golden age of of modern tokyo mm-hmm. um and my my work my practice was always interested in exploring the remnants of that because you know you can build new stuff on top of it but the the kind of foundations of that old stuff remains and so um you know looking at the the, the architecture um or the public housing projects in particular um a lot of that went into inspire some of these futuristic anime um set pieces and these, mm-hmm. this concept art that came out in that period of the 80s because they were extrapolating that future you know further out and saying well what would 2030 2019 20 2050 what's that going to look like yeah. based on what we have today and so there's a very distinctive japanese concept art style which i think comes through and you don't see that in reality anymore but at the time they were basing it off what they saw around them which was this kind of modernist um kind of concrete style of building that was really predominant in Japan and it's i find it quite fascinating that you chose to photograph that era of architecture because generally when we think of Japan we look at either the hyper active the shibuya area or the or else the really older structures and then you talk about the dichotomy of those two eras but you found a very niche time in between those two which is of course yeah. very very interesting yeah no i think the uh 
again, you know, from the outside, it may seem like, you know, Tokyo or Japan is a very high tech place, but mm-hmm. there are these, this legacy of, of the older days. Mm-hmm. And it is in that period, I believe, sort of post-war through to the 1980s when you had this kind of Japanese miracle where they were able to rebuild the country, you know, from ruins mm-hmm. effectively. And that really happened quite fast. And uh, I was very fascinated by um, especially sort of the earlier end of that where you had, you know, 1945, you know, Tokyo has burnt to the ground, you know, and then within 10 years, you know, they, they'd rebuilt quite a lot of it. And within 20 years, it was it was completely unrecognizable. But every now and then you you find these little nuggets from the old old days. And there's so, such few examples of that. Um, there's one really quite iconic example that I, that I came across um, in, in the old days. That's just a little story for you. But in the old days, Tokyo uh, or Edo, I guess you could call it, they, they measured the center of the city was actually at a place called Nihonbashi. So it's a, the Nihon Bridge mm-hmm. is the, sort of the official center of the city. And um, it's an old, uh, an old bridge across the, Nihon, um, uh, across the river there. And um, that was, you know, all just sort of wooden houses and, and that sort of thing during the war. And then um, there was a quite a, a large firebomb, firebombing campaign that took place. Um, and uh, they, they burnt down that whole area just, you know, with the incendiary uh, bombs. And on the Nihonbashi Bridge, which was made of um, stone and, and concrete, you can actually still see today, and I've seen it with my own eyes, you can still see the scorch marks on the bridge from where the, the bombs you know, sort of oh, fell wow. down because they they got this sort of, um, uh, you know, incendiary sort of uh, mixture in them and it just leaves a scorching mark and everything else that wasn't made of stone or concrete burnt to the ground except for that bridge. And so you can go there today and it's, it's quite sort of futuristic because over top of the bridge is an, an, an entire another highway. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite layered, that whole area, and there's a subway beneath it. And but you know, at the time, it was very, very much just a, a, the business district, um, and so that for me, that really, that, that's one of the the rare fleeting examples of this connection to the past, which was so difficult to kind of track down. Mm-hmm. You know, everything from before 1945 is gone, and so I was looking for these little moments, um, and you see that you know in other architecture, you know, the maybe some some building that went up in the 60s was built on top of something else, True. and so it was that kind of second addition of whatever it was that was there before yeah uh, that I always found very fascinating yeah yeah that's that's a great observation because so I studied architecture as well and that is something that we always spoke about like how architecture is layering upon itself as the generations go by and that point that you brought up about half the city being destroyed essentially almost erases that memory of that space completely so you going around and finding those remnants is pretty interesting yeah, no, it, I think it is important. And, and that was sort of the, I guess, the practice that I developed over there was this kind of idea of wandering and exploring and trying to identify and, and kind of feel the the moments. Because often it was it's, it's the unspoken just out where you, you, it's what you don't see or the, the lack of something, you know. And, and another example of that would be, um, you know, there's often these small sort of pocket parks or corner parks, you know, they're only, uh, you know, the size of a, uh, I don't know, sort of 10 meters by 10 meters sort of thing, but mm-hmm. uh, often on locations where the houses that were there burnt to the ground and then the owners, every single person died. Um, and so there was no one to take over. So the, the city just sort of took, turned it into a park. And so in the old, they call it the, the Shitamachi, like the downtown, the old downtown of Tokyo, you have a lot of these small parks, which are really just places that were once houses that got burnt down. 
uh, during the war and everyone who owned those houses died and so they just turned it into a, into a house uh, into a park um, and so it's that kind of lack of something but which also speaks volumes for what uh, what was once there well that's true so what what brought you to japan to begin with because when you think of new zealand first it's like spectacular landscapes and these amazing vistas of mountains and grass but then your work revolves around dense architecture and built form so i always struggled with my connection to new zealand and uh at the moment i'm still i'm back in new zealand and it's that that challenge has re-emerged but i've always found that i didn't really fit in here mm-hmm. um, new zealand you know f- again from the outside it, it may seem like it's a very beautiful picturesque place but um deep down there, there's a lot of uh, issues in, in new zealand and they might not manifest themselves um as uh, you know as clearly as maybe, um, uh, you know, maybe in other places, but there's definitely some issues in this country um, and, and sort of things that make it, I, I guess, difficult to be, um, to be ambitious, difficult to do the things that um, I, I kind of had dreamed about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was stuck in my hometown. Um, I, was, I was probably, what, 19 years old and I was, I was stuck in my hometown because there was, there was really nothing for me here at that point. And um, I was uh, cleaning office buildings of all things. Uh, so it's a small town. Um, I, late at night, I'll do office cleaning, just, you know, vacuum on my back. Um, and I'll do this. And I was, I was doing did like a hospital, a few different places. Um, and it was by myself. And I found it really, really quite meditative. Um, and it's something that's gone on to be, uh, looking back, I reflect on it quite fondly. But there's something about having that vacuum on my back and the kind of the white noise of it. And I would just do this and, and get into this very meditative dreamlike state. And um, one day I was doing this cleaning and um, I just had this idea. I was like, man, well, why don't I just get out of here? You know, why don't I go to and And um, the idea sort of, it was, it was like inception, you know, um, they just sort of, the idea got placed in me um, and I couldn't say no to it. And so a, a series of events, a, a series of actions needed to be taken for me to go from, you know, poor and living in, you know, staying in my hometown, staying on my friend's couch to actually being able to move to Tokyo and pursue this artistic career and this dream that struck me one day. Um, so there's a series of events that needed to happen. But to get to that, I thought, okay, well, look, firstly, I've got to get out of here. So I moved to the uh, bigger city, um, uh, got a scholarship, I did a few other things, um, pulled finger, as, as we would say here, to make that happen. Um, and then, yeah, I, I, I got to Japan. And at the time, I think, I'm not quite sure. It's, it's difficult because, you know, you look back and you, you mix your memories of now with what you were thinking at the time. But I do have some sort of journaling that I, and diaries from that time. And, and I think really it was about getting out and finding something that would inspire me mm-hmm. and something more inspiring. And, and just the, the idea of Tokyo was, you know, not, not necessarily just Japan, but Tokyo specifically, something about that deeply inspired me. Um, and I remember at the time, I actually, uh, I made a ring, like, a you know, for, for, you know putting on my finger and I, I carved in the words Tokyo no Yume, it was like, you know, the Tokyo dream, um, before I ever even went, you know, this was when I was still in this preparatory phase where I was trying to get all my ducks in a row before I actually went to Japan and I had to get some money together and a few other things, but um, I, I got this ring made and um, I, w- I wore it everywhere and it just, every time I looked at it, it was like a reminded that i had this thing that i needed to do mm-hmm. um and that got me through a, a lot of hard times to to get to the point where i was like yeah i was on the plane and i started this new life uh, in japan well that's fascinating i mean from a seemingly mundane or impossible situation to really 
envision that dream it's a pretty commendable thing yeah no it's um i think you know these things come to you and you sometimes have to listen to the little voice um you know when it comes it sort of wants to say to you you know what you really need to do and i think it is in those sort of meditative times when you can actually really let that voice speak and and this is something i'm I'm very interested in just with modern society i think we have so much distraction that that voice never gets a chance to um to really you know be heard that's a great point i mean i was just about to bring up that very point that everyone has that thought or that gut feeling within themselves but very few people actually pull the trigger and go for that particular topic or that idea in their mind. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not quite sure what it is about me that made that the way it is. But, you know, definitely I, I, I realize, you know, life being uh, what it is, you do need to act upon what that voice says. And even if it puts you in a very precarious situation, um, you know, I've often thought, you know, why did I do that? But it led me to where I am right now into this moment. And, you know, I could have ignored that voice at that time and my life would have taken a different path, but I wouldn't be the same person that I am today. Definitely. So back yeah. when you were still in New Zealand, I mean, originally when before you left for Japan, were you involved with any sort of creative work? Were your peers creative or your family? Um, so I, I can't, I can't say my family were creative, uh, at all. Um, you know, New Zealand, I guess at a high level, it, it's, it's a very practical country and, and I love it f- for that, you know, it's, um, salt of the earth. Um, and in particular where I grew up, mm-hmm. it was, uh, you know, orchards and farms and, um, very, very, uh, a very simple agrarian life. And I do re- respect that and love that now looking back, but, um, at the time, it's very much uh, looking inside the or looking into the internet, looking into the media that's happening overseas and what's happening over there, which is where I took my inspiration. Uh, so I was very interested in those early days um, in video games. Um, I was interested in 3D. Um, I was, you know, with my friends in high school, we were messing around with, you know, 3D Studio Max and and Hammer. I don't know if anyone knows that. It's like a map editor for Half-Life 2 and uh, that sort of a thing. Um, it was kind of the early days, you know, I think today, you know, we think Unity, we think uh, Unreal Engine, you know, it's, it's quite big names, but back then, you know, we're talking, you know, 10, 10 plus years ago, um, or more than that, probably, you know, sort of 13, 14 years ago, it was very much, uh, there was quite a lot of small independent things, you know, there was different software, you know, you could find free demos or you could just mm-hmm. get it, you know, it was, that was what my friends were doing in school. And we definitely, um, we had some good times um, making little maps for Counter-Strike or trying to make a, make a game. You know, I was really interested in the mod community for Half-Life 2. Um, really interested in a couple of the open source projects that were happening back then. And that was like, man, this is cool. But at the same time, um, I, I, I knew that it was like, um, it was kind of a form of escapism, mm-hmm. you know, like I was building these worlds and they had, I was very inspired by the, the, the media that I was consuming. There was a lot of film and games that I was into at that time, but it was a, a form of escapism, you know, and I was like, okay, I wish I could make my life more, more real instead of trying to make something about it. And, uh, you know, in this, in this, in these systems. So I, I think there's something changed that when I, when I finally did make the move to Japan, I started like participating in the real world and that was almost more engaging and more f- that, that was more inspiring for me than trying to recreate something hmm. um, inside the computer, if you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and that was sort of when the photography really took off. So 
before then, you know, I was like trying to recreate things because there was nothing around me. But once I actually entered that space, um, I was much more interested in the real world and, and photographing that. So at this point, you've photographed quite a few different cities. I mean, each of them have their own context and flavor within that the way that city has evolved. What, what are the common narratives that you find within these cities? Well, I mean, modernity and just sort of the development of of the city as a, as a, as a machine, I think is, is definitely one of the core concepts that runs through all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so my first book, which was exploring the public housing projects in Japan, the Danchi dreams is very much looking at this kind of post-war dream of, um, you know, public housing, um, you know, that, that sort of concrete, um, you know, massive scale sort of stuff. And that, I very clearly see the connection to that in, in, in every other city I've ever been to, you know, like that kind of concrete apartment blocks, you know, you can see that in Auckland and Wellington and Tokyo and Bangkok, um, Shanghai, it's it's everywhere. And so there's this kind of, you know, international modern style of of concrete boxes that's mm-hmm. emerged since World War Two, or, you know, since, since sort of the 40s, I guess. But that, I find that very fascinating because it's sort of, it's come together and it's not, you know, it's not political or anything. It's, it's just happened to be the way it is. And so looking for those connections, um, I found very inspiring. Um, uh, looking at the way cities have grown from say what they were once upon a time to where they are today, you know, so somewhere like Tokyo, you know, which was a, a much smaller place and a lot more pedestrian focused has grown into this mega city and they've had to put highways over the top of things to actually make it work, right? Whereas in, say, Wellington and New Zealand, you know, they had to put highways through the city because there was all these kind of bits of nature that they were able to just demolish and build through. So there's kind of different approaches to development of cities. And within all of that, there's a story that unfolds, mm-hmm. you know, as, as the city has grown. So it's, it's hard to, I mean, it's hard to kind of compare places, I guess, but um, I find each place has its own character for sure. Do you ever like get closer to the building to the point where you're almost interacting with the people within those buildings itself? Because all your photographs are at such a large scale where you're looking at a very, very macro shot of the city. Do you feel like you want to get more intimate? Yeah. I mean, I always think my work is is very much from the outside looking in. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do talk to people every now and then. Um, Perhaps I get caught (laughs) <laughs> or perhaps perhaps I go and say hi, you know, because I do try to be quite friendly. Um, I don't like to go out and sort of bother people, but mm-hmm. if someone sees me and I say, hey, you know, let's maybe have a small small conversation with them. Um, I guess in terms of the individual story, the buildings themselves for me are the characters and looking at people within the buildings, um, it, it's never been sort of my focus. I think I've always been tr- sort of about the, the building as this larger entity. Um, and so definitely people's stories, anecdotes I really love. You know, people tell me about the old days mm-hmm. um, or they tell me what used to be there and, and, and I really take that to heart. But that doesn't, um, I, I, don't, I don't show that directly. I try to show it indirectly. Um, and so, you know, another example of that, um, you know, we were talking earlier about the Nihonbashi Bridge with mm-hmm. the, the scorch marks from the firebombing. And I was actually hanging around there. There's a small uh, suburb just next to that called uh, Ningyocho which Ningyo is actually like a doll, you know, um, sort of like a puppet. And um, that's where they used to make them in the Edo period, I believe, Um, these sort of, um, you know, very ornate uh, uh, dolls. 
And in that particular area, there's just one street that, for whatever reason, avoided the firebombing. And so there's some very ornate kind of Edo period oh. um, houses and buildings there. Yeah, really beautiful. It's sort of the sort of stuff you'd see in Kyoto because, uh, you know, Kyoto was, uh, it never got uh, uh, firebombed as extensively as, as Tokyo. And, um, you know, there's this, this one street and, and I was hanging around there one night, you know, as I do. And uh, there was this, this sushi place and the guy sort of came out and um, was doing something and, and, and he saw me and I went and had a chat with him. He's like, oh, you know, come come in. And um, we went in there and we just stood around and they had already closed up for the night. It was like 11 o'clock at night or something. But he, um, you know, he was there and his assistant was with him, this young kid. And they just, yeah, they made some sushi for me as we were standing around having a chat. And um, he told me about the history of the place, how it had been there for, you know, uh, you know hundreds of years and, and that sort of thing. And um, there was a photo up on the wall. I think one of the, some member of the imperial family had come there and, 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 and uh, dined in the 60s. And there's all of this history. Yeah. And all, all, all that I show of that is sort of this outside shot of the, of, of the place. And, and I've, I've written about it, I think, maybe um, in my, um, on, my, on my Patreon and, what, and um, maybe in my magazine. But just the, the story and the context of that um you know for me that's what makes the image so more valuable so much more valuable but i don't have to show that engagement directly it's more like they 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 give it to me and then i can i can just show it um as it is yeah well that's fascinating because i guess through those stories that they have lived the architecture of the space around them evolves on its own and then you capture that from the outside so yeah their story is there yeah and and it's it's very it's, it's it's very fine a fine thing you know because you can sort of stand there and, and and take the same photo i guess you'd say you know and and, and whatnot but really there, there's a very subtle difference i think in, in the angle and the composition and the timing of things which if you if you wait for it and you see it that that's when it that's when it really popped you know mm. um and you can only do that when you really listen i think and, and sort of see and listen what's going on in a place yeah i love the way you mentioned you're treating the architecture as the character itself because to me, really, architecture is that ultimate combination of technology, commerce, art, and culture, because everything has to come together in a certain way for it to exist. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of architecture as a practice, though I've often thought I'd be uh, a terrible architect. Um, firstly, because I, I struggle to follow rules. And secondly, um, I don't probably have the patience. Uh, I've got a lot of friends who are in that space. And um I, th- I think there's a certain idealism and I f- for, for, for sure, you know, my, you know, the classic sort of um, fountainhead Howard Rourke kind of architecture story, you know, I mean, it's very beautiful and, and poetic, but the reality is, especially in, in this country and, and, and that is, you know, it's a lot of paperwork, a lot of um, uh, resource management uh, kind of permits and, and, and things like that, which in a way it, it's, it's kind of become very regulated and bureaucratic. And I think that f- you know, and conceptually, you know, that, that's um, it's part of the deal, I guess. But um, there, there is this sort of pure, more, more pure idea of architecture, I think, which transcends that, which I think you can find in a lot of older pieces. You know, like I look at, um, you know, sort of the stuff in Japan they were putting up in the 60s. And, you know, there's like, you know, there's small, you know, small practices, you know, and, and you could kind of go out and have drinks with the, the city office and, and just kind of get stuff pushed over the line. Whereas today, you know, there's so much like earthquake uh, requirements and, and, and paperwork to go through that you, you can't be as, um, as loose and, and, and experimental. Um, and, and I see actually recently the, the Nakagin, 
the Metabolist building in Tokyo has been scheduled for demolition. I don't know if you saw that. No. Um, or yeah, so you've got the, you know the, the classic capsule hotel with the Metabolist architecture in Japan. It's like I think it's the last example of that t- style of architecture. Um, everyone, you know, sort of you go you go to that part of Tokyo and you can see it there. But that's um, just been announced, and I, it's been announced before that it's going to get demolished. But I think this time they're going to follow through on it. But, you know, to build something like that today, I think would be impossible just with the requirements of, of you know, a new building. Um, wow. But at that a, time. That'll yeah. be a real shame, yeah. I mean, for such a iconic structure to be demolished after all these years. Yeah, I think it's got some, I believe it has some structural issues, um, but it was always meant as an experimental piece, you know. And I think this idea of experimenting with architecture is, is quite, I mean, it's not really kosher anymore to do that, right? And especially in New Zealand and Japan where earthquakes are such an issue. You know, people are like very, um, very cautious about doing anything outside of the limit, right? Whereas at that point, you know, you could kind of be a bit more outside of the box. Um, and it kind of led to, I think, more experimentation and more interesting work. Do you feel the same about in photography as well? Like there are certain trends that catch on as more people popularize certain ways of capturing buildings or nature or people, whatever it may be. And then that mm. becomes the standard so to speak and then breaking out of that becomes hard do you feel like that oh man yeah i think there's there's two concepts right there's the style and the treatment of the image Mm -hmm. and then there's the content of it and and i think stylistically and and i I was there at the time you know there's the instagram look right that people go for and there's the filters and there's the packs that people buy and there's Mm -hmm. this whole thing right that, that's all good that, and that's a bit of fun and look you know it's um it's very empowering and that's a good place to start right but at the end of the day it, it's really about the subject matter and the story that you're trying to tell and i think that's really what inspired me from the beginning was trying to find uh, a story inside this place you know because it's not just about the images mm-hmm. you know and there's you know there's an, a number of ways of approaching it i've got a lot of friends who are shooting with film you know large format film um, you know, people shooting digital. There, there's so many kind of visual styles, you know, whether it's black and white or super clean cut digital, like what I do. Um, but really it's like, what, what, what's behind it and what are you trying to show me? And I think that's one of the challenges is trying to find a, a genuine story and a body of work that you can actually showcase and, and talk through. And that, that's probably where I see stylistically, it probably doesn't really matter. Like you, people find what they like. And if you, if you're a bit older, you maybe, or it actually doesn't matter how old you are. You know, maybe you love the look of film, or maybe you love the look of you know clean cut digital. Maybe you like black and white, washed out, whatever you want to do. That's that's kind of a, a personal development. Mm-hmm. But the actual story and the the thing that you're shooting and this, this kind of the subject matter, that's really where the, the, the conceptual thought needs to go in. And I think um, you, you can't really skip that. You know, I suppose there's also a philosophy in how you grade the images and what kind of a color treatment you're giving them at the end of the capturing process, because that also adds a lot of the person's involvement, like your lens of the, of mm. that image. Yeah. I, I think I've always, I've, I've, I've done, always done, you know, post-processing on, on just, but I've always thought, you know, that there's, there's an intention behind it in terms of using color to tell the story. Mm-hmm. Um, doing it in such a way that it's not uh not not trying to be too too heavy-handed with it um and and trying to relate it back to this kind of these these deeper concepts right so 
with the um the danchi work you know the the danchi dreams you know there was very much this blue green tinge that kind of yeah. ran out ran through the work um and it was very much kind of reminiscent of that kind of fluorescence um and the kind of the dull concrete at night you know um you know maybe lit by a you know the kind of flickering you know tube of light mm-hmm. and um that, that same kind of look you know bringing that to say bangkok when i did my second book um Bangkok phosphors, you know, and, and literally taking the idea of the phosphors of the night yeah. and the, the television screens and all of that stuff. So I've always tried to kind of connect that up, but um, that, that, yeah, it's, it's a lot of experimentation. I think there's a lot of stuff that you can do in there and it, it's maybe one of the, I, I really enjoy that aspect of it, trying to find that look and you know, when you kind of get it, but um, it, it's sort of, yeah, I guess it's, it's part of the process as part of the grading um, and it would be the same with film, you know, it's same with photos. You, you apply this treatment and then you try to bring it to all of the images to connect them together. Um, but it's still, I think it's still about that body of work, mm-hmm. you know, having, the, uh, yeah. Is this entire process like a solitary experience for you or do you have a f- group of friends who go together and shoot these places? I, I think initially it was definitely a, well, the photography, the primary shooting is yeah, definitely a solitary experience of mm-hmm. every so often I might go out with a friend and introduce them into my practice and how I work. But I've found going out with other people, it, it can be a bit of fun, you know, um, but it's definitely not where the work happens. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, you know, maybe we can hang out, go take some photos, but generally I, I'm by myself um, uh, with, with, with a few exceptions, but um you know, with the editing as well, you know, um, I'm, 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 I'm at my computer, you know, that's, I'm at my workstation making it happen. I do have some, uh, I'm very fortunate to have some good friends um, and people who I work with who I can kind of share my progress with, um, share ideas with um, and kind of bounce the work around. Uh, I think that's very important. And it's something that um, earlier in my career, I didn't have. Um, but later on, it sort of came when, it, when the time was right. Um, and I was able to start engaging with things at a deeper level. Mm-hmm. And so I'd consider my most recent projects that I've been working on have been definitely informed by collaboration more than my previous work. Is that specific to the housing in New Zealand, the one that series? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Yeah, so I'm very lucky to have a curator actually for that project, a friend of mine, Graham Frost, who's um, incredibly talented, extremely knowledgeable, um, and he provides a very academic and quite um knowledgeable uh, kind of connection to the work uh which you know i, I don't necessarily possess the you know the, a full understanding of of what's already out there and what's been done in new zealand mm-hmm. um so it's kind of like being able to connect it because I'm, I'm very much aware of i guess you know, not necessarily the specifics but you know the, the general feel of, of where the new zealand um of, of kind of what new zealand is I, I have this kind of conception of it um, which is very, it's very problematic at the moment, trying to kind of living in this country while it's turning, you know, turning the way it is. But um, being able to actually connect that with specific artists or specific movements that happened in the past um, and, and kind of finding a spot for my work, because New Zealand, at the end of the day, it's a small place. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, any work you create here kind of fits in with, with a whole lot of other stuff. And so trying to find that spot and, and communicating that's um really important and it's it's important to to yeah i guess be part of that yes a common thread that i noticed across all these various snapshots of different cities including the recent series in new zealand itself there is a sense of decay within this architecture because 
it's either been built so long back or it's become in disuse it's that element of just being forgotten over time that seems to be consistently popping up yeah i think um at this point in time as of today um as of now i, I really feel like the bigger body of works so everything i've done over the last few years is really a, a, a glimpse at the the end of i guess the world as we knew it mm-hmm. um looking at sort of the great ideals of societies over the last 50 years um in new zealand uh, japan everywhere all of the work that i'm doing is kind of documenting the decay of these structures and institutions that were once the the the, the beacon of hope for the future right mm-hmm. so in japan it was these public housing projects or in new zealand it was the, the state houses and and kind of every kiwi having their own home and, and these ideas which today and, and with everything happening in the world i believe that that is very much a, a forgotten dream and we're, we're moving away from that and so there's this kind of decay of at the end of the day hum, humanism i think um you know we've we've all become you know reduced down into biological elements you know it's like you're a you're a i don't know a covid patient or you're you're this or that you know you, that, that, that kind of spirit of humanism i think has, has disappeared and and this idea that you know maybe everyone should have a home you know, everyone should be part of this, you know, have, have the opportunity to be part of a great society where great things happen and every individual is uh, empowered to do things. Um, we're, we're sort of, I think, moving away from that slowly. And so the the, the images I, I shoot, it's, it's a little bit melancholic, but they're, they're almost lamenting the good old days mm-hmm. um, when we were, we still dreamed about things, you know? I think the good, the, the thing that really I appreciate about your work is that while you're let's say lamenting about the good old days it's not overly showering the viewer in nostalgia it's still just capturing the essence and i like that because too often you see nostalgia being used as a trick to lure people into liking that mm. creative piece yeah yeah nostalgia is an interesting one i'm very I'm, I'm very intimate with the idea of nostalgia i write about it quite a lot but i think um there's there's something bigger than that you know because we all you know we, you know we all think about our childhood or you know the good old days for ourselves but i think from a societal level you know there's definitely a change taking place mm-hmm. and I, I feel my, my myself i feel responsible to document that through images that will last um you know beyond the lifetime of those buildings perhaps that beyond the lifetime of that society perhaps mm-hmm. you know and so, the kind of projects that I'm interested in now, obviously the New Zealand series is, is where I'm at at the moment. It's a little bit problematic because um, we've got this, um, I was supposed to have a show actually last month, but that oh. got uh, postponed. Um, it was going to be a big show, but there, that got postponed because of the lockdowns. But the kind of work that I'm really interested in now is, is going to these societies that are going through a lot of change, mm-hmm. you know, and, and maybe I, you know, when I can travel again, um, going to other countries, um, you know, as they kind of transform into whatever it is that they're becoming and trying to capture the, the remnants of it before it's too late. Um, and then, you know, you, you can sit on those images, you know, and maybe it takes 10 years or 20 years, but then one day you can come back and say, well, actually, here's, here's the images. Maybe they're not relevant today, but they, in one day they will be relevant. Be, yeah. um, and that was something I was, I was really, I really loved with Stefan, you know, coming back to Stefan's book, you know, at the time, you know, a lot of these anime that he, he was looking at from sort of the old days, you know, eighties and nineties or whatnot. And, um, you know, maybe at the time people thought it would have been cool to see the concept art for that, but it's only now after all of this time 
um, that we can look back and say, okay, these were the ones that were really important. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the, this is the uh, the ghost in the shell, the Akira. You know, they, these are the ones that we need to go back and, and kind of review and, and be able to have that concept art available to look through. Um, it kind of becomes more valuable over time. Um, so yeah, think about the practice as something that you know I, I can take photos today, and maybe I don't do anything with them just yet. Um, but in twenty years, maybe they're going to be very important. Oh, that's a great outlook. I mean, I always like it when people are thinking possibilities a couple of decades ahead in time because then the way you approach the work today is quite different and that's always interesting. Yeah, it's um, it's difficult. I mean, there's some practical challenges with that. You know, obviously, um, you know, we live in a society of the now, mm-hmm. TikTok generation, right? Everyone wants everything right now. And so, um, you know, I can't say it's very conducive to a, um, in a hyper-prolific um you know career in the in the short term um because you know you're you're thinking okay what's the long term that i'm trying to do here you know because it's there's a lot of opportunities i think to um create work and just push it out you know and we live in this kind of media machine right yeah. and uh, hollywood's a good example of that right where it's it's really well crafted but it's ultimately it's um it's empty um and and i think that's that's one of the challenges we live in is actually telling a real story um and and I, I don't know if I could do it any other way. I've, I've tried and failed to just kind of be the thing that is is the now. But at the end of the day, there's this sort of timelessness, which I can only attribute to my 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 my, my growing up in the countryside that allows me to do that. I mean, whatever you're working on seems to be colliding in a great manner because that there is a good just juxtaposition in the photography and the architecture. But I, I want to take yeah. a couple of steps back because now you seem to have a very resolved philosophy of your work but when you were just starting out with photography obviously i don't think it was that maturely settled so what was your thought process at that time yeah so i I could definitely look back on the old days um fondly um as one looks back on their own childhood i guess or or whatever but um i I think always there was this element of wandering Mm -hmm. and so the early days were very much about exploration and kind of pushing the boundaries of what was possible just physically, right. You know, going out, you know, going on these huge journeys into different places, you know, going, you know, and again, for a kid from the countryside growing up on an orchard, it was quite a big thing to be like, all right, we're going to jump on a plane and go to China. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. So there's kind of these, these baby steps, which maybe for many people are quite, I guess quite normal, but for me, it was like, it's a huge thing to actually leave New Zealand, even to be honest, you know, like I was, no one in my family had ever left really. I had a few people, Oh, you know, my auntie lives in Sydney at the time, but in, in Australia, but, you know, most people didn't really leave the Southern Hemisphere to right. get out, you know, whereas I was the first one to do that and, and out of anyone that I knew. And so that was kind of a big move. And, you know, there, there was sort of layers of that. So in the early days, it was very much about wandering and exploring and the photos themselves, which I can look back and they're very important to me personally, but the imagery, it was formative. That's all I could say. You know, I was I was taking taking images, taking photos, and and trying to learn learn the practice, learn from others. Um, and I, I think one day, you know, I can look back on that and say, you know, there was sort of the lineage of it, and and a few opportunities where I got to learn from um, you know, certain people and 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 whatnot. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it, it was a it was a long process to get to the point where, and then I'm still learning today. Of course, you know, still working it out. Yeah, but. Um, I think definitely just keep, I kept at it as well, which was a certain tenacity. Um, I, I think 
never giving up. It was really important. You know, I just kept doing it and it slowly worked itself out. Um, but beyond that, yeah, it's difficult to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely it comes down to consistency and just keeping on repeating that process because there are obviously these phases where the, the task of creating something itself becomes mundane because you're, you've been at it for so long. But then you need to find new ways to surprise yourself or keep yourself engaged. Yeah, I, I think just uh, the, the images were always secondary to the wandering process. Um, you know, and, and even today, you know, I could teach somebody how to take photos, you know, in, in an hour or so, you know, like the images that I do the way, at least the way I shoot, at least, you know, it's, there's no secret source there. Um, but, but it is the wandering aspect um, and the exploration and the consideration of places which, you know, fundamentally the philosophy that I um, developed, or, or I, actually, I don't know, let me rewind there. I, the, the philosophy that I, I guess inherited, which is this idea of derive, you know, which comes from the um, situationist international sort of, you know, this, this kind of French idea of wandering a place and wandering a city, you know, which developed in the 50s. Um, you know, I was introduced to that um, just sort of randomly, I think. Um, and then I got into a bit of that literature and this idea of derive was, you know, exploring places um, in a non-linear way. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that really was the beginning. And so even in the early days, I didn't even have a camera. I just had my iPhone or I just had a, a notebook or something, you know, and I was using my eyeballs um, and the photos came later. Right. You know? but, yeah. Mm, there are two parallel questions just from this. First is about the actual economics of pursuing a career in photography, because as you go deeper into the craft, it's not a cheap passion or pursuit to go into, definitely. You need mm. good gear to get into it, especially, and then the more you talk about traveling to different countries, it's not a cheap pursuit by any means. How how was that journey for you? Was it easy? Was it hard? So I'm, I'm intimately familiar with, um, with <laughs> uh, I guess, struggling uh, to make things happen. Um, uh, it's, it's definitely a difficult, uh, a very difficult industry uh, to uh, to do well in. Um, I, th I think um, you know the world of photography, um, commercial photography. Um, it, it really is its own thing, right? And so the work that I'm doing, which is I'd consider it fine art photography, um, you know, it's it's quite different to say uh, a shooting a shooting commercial work. And so in the early days, I, I really wasn't sure, and I didn't understand, and I didn't really have an insight into the industry and so I tried to work it out on my own and it, it took a little while to kind of figure it all out and I still you know I'm still in that process I guess in a way but I think zooming out a little bit a philosophy that's been really important to me is to have the freedom to do the work that I want to do mm -hmm. um, I never I, I've always felt a little bit uncomfortable just kind of taking on an assignment as it is um and, and, you know, in the early days, people came to me and they're like, hey, can you do this? And and I would do it. But it always felt a bit cheap, to be completely fair. It was like, yeah, I don't know. It's Maybe it's the, the rebel inside me, but I, I didn't really respond to kind of being given an assignment and having to make my thing fit that. Mm -hmm. um, I always preferred sort of the more collaborative approach, where it was like, hey, we've got this kind of thing that we're doing, and then kind of working together to make it happen. Um, and... That, that, that I, I had, you know, I had a few opportunities in that space and that, those were really, you know, those were really successful and the work that came out of that was a lot better than I think the stuff where it was kind of like, just take this photo, you know? Um, and I, I guess zooming out as well, I've always had this kind of, 
parallel career where I've been working in design mm -hmm. and doing digital work, right? So websites and, and that sort of thing. Um, and, and that's kind of done really well to have that alongside the photography because, you know, I was, you know, I was able to get on a plane and go somewhere. And if, as long as I got an internet connection, I can kind of do my work or, you know, at that time anyway, I could do my work right. and then I'd have these kind of evenings free to go and do my, my real work, which is the photos. Right. So I think it's worked for me. I don't know. It's, it's probably the wrong way to be honest. Like maybe there's, a, there's more, there's probably better people to talk to about it, but like for myself, what I've found has worked is, is basically having, having both, you know, so having, having a, a job that's something you can do remotely from a computer um, something like digital, um, and then having that enable the freedom to do the wandering and the, and the work that is really my passion. Mm -hmm. And I needed to do that for three or four years to actually bootstrap the career because the stuff that I was doing, the photos I was doing in the early days just weren't really what it needed to be. It took, you know, it took a long time to get, you know, and, and, and I, I think of it like, you know, when you're growing like a, you're growing a plant and, and you've got to like kind of protect it while it's just a little seedling, right? Mm -hmm. And I think I, I always thought about my career like creatively like that. It's like it's this little seedling and you just got to let it grow until it's strong enough to stand up on its own sort of thing. So I, I think that process took a number of years. And at this point in time, you know, I'm, I'm making stuff happen, but it wasn't like that on the first day. Mm -hmm, of course. And if, it, and if it was, I think the challenge would have been it would have gone straight to my head and I would have been like, okay, I'm this most amazing thing. I don't have to innovate ever again. And then you become the Justin Bieber, right? Um, and, you know, whether you love his music or not, um, it's like, yeah, that guy's sort of stuck in a certain space, right? But if you go through the hardships and the difficulty and then you really go and find out what the bigger picture is, then you can, you know, you're, you're kind of, you, you, you arrive at that space. Um, and if you arrive too early, I think it can be, it can be almost as bad as never getting there. Yeah. I think it distorts the perception of the craft itself if you achieve hyper amount of success too soon. It seems what to be is, that what is success? Yeah, what is success as well? You know, like, I, again, this is my, my, we have this phrase in New Zealand, um, whether you loathe it or not, it's, we, sort of, we say tall poppy syndrome. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's like, you know, the tall poppy gets cut down, right? Oh, and, I see. And, and it's definitely like, this idea like, you know, you get sort of really super successful and it becomes this amazing thing, but is it really what, it, you know, is it really that good? Um, and I think I often think about myself and I'm like, I have, have, is what I've done, you know, is it, is it really, you know, am I, am I a photographer? Is it really good? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. It's, it's sort of like being a bit, I guess, humble about it and letting it be what it wants to be instead of pushing it. And um, it's in those moments when you actually, you kind of get to where, you get to a really good spot. Um, so I don't know if that really makes sense, but um, you know, it's like you, you, you get to an area where, you know, the images really tell a story and you can really connect with it. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, it is a very abstract topic from my perception and having spoken to a fair number of creatives over time, typically, I guess the, the essence of success is the freedom to be able to create what you want to create in the future. And yeah. everything else just takes care of itself, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you know, I'm 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 doing okay. You know, in terms of, I you know, I had the opportunity to you know spend a lot of time traveling and living in other countries, mm -hmm. which, you know, my my work um, and the photography kind of they went hand in hand, and that happened. Um, and now at this point in time, that's been really useful because there's not a lot of stuff happening in the photo space at the moment. So it's like, hey, actually, I've got a, a full skill set that I can fall back on, um, and, and 
the same time, um, it kind of enables, you know, enables the work a bit more like having, um, having some digital skills and, and sort of other stuff, you know, you, you become more sort of multifaceted. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, even ha- taking on other jobs, you know, like um, I, was ha- I was having a chat with this guy, a super fascinating guy who's telling me about, he, he was working in South Africa a long time ago, in, sort of in the 80s as a safari truck driver. Oh, wow. um, and uh, we're just having a beer and talking about it. And his story was just so fascinating because, you know, back th- that was back in the, the that was the, the bad days. You know? And he, he, he came from, well, he's from New Zealand, but he, he moved to the UK and, you know, in those days there was no digital systems. And so people sort of fell through the cracks and then somehow or rather he ended up in, in South Africa and just listening to his stories. I was like, man, that's, that's really cool. You know, like this guy had a, had a story to tell, but he was just so chill about it. Um, and no one would know, you know, this, there was no documentation of any of this. It was just, you know, he had lived his life. Yeah. Um, and so I think in terms of success, it's like, yeah, are you, are you able to create what you want to create? Are you satisfied that you have told the story and done the thing that you need to do because you know sometimes you know you know what it is and you just gotta it's it's like you know that time when i was vacuuming these office buildings and i knew that i had to go to japan and do this thing and I, I couldn't stop until i'd done that and that that was the goal and so it wasn't anything else it was just i had to do the thing that i needed to do and i think that's that's what it boils down to everything else is just ego you know <laughs> yeah and it's always fascinating. I mean, you have had a certain amount of success in your field. And then if I look at a photographer just trying to break into the photography market, I wonder what their perception of the industry is. Because especially after the advent, advent of social media, it's become so saturated with photography accounts and people shooting images all over the world. How does one even begin to stand out? Oh, man. To be, I don't even know if I'm a photographer anymore, man. Like, it's, it's like I, I, I go and explore these places and I take these photos, I guess. But breaking out into the space, I don't know, man. Like, if you want to be a fashion photographer, you want to shoot the cover of Vogue, you know, that's, that's its own thing, right? You know, and uh, good luck with that because I don't know anything, man. I, I wear the same T-shirts every day. But, you know, having, having a, you know, telling a story through images I always think it's really important to have context, right? So if, if I was starting out or if, if I had somebody and I wish I had this person when I was starting out, but if, if, if someone's starting out and they want to do something, I think the most important thing to do is to get physical with the work. And what I mean by that is you've got to print it out hmm. and you've got to have a show, um, you know, whether it's in like a local cafe or, or, or a bar or wherever, somewhere where they're like, all right, just, you know, you can use the space for free put your images up and get people into the space and get them talking about it. I think that's, that's when you go from being this Instagram thing to actually being real. Um, and I think that's, I, I did that kind of early on and it made a big difference because, you know, you can sort of talk to people through the work and through your process and go through the hard work of like getting the work framed and printed, you know, spending all this money on stuff that you're probably never going to sell. Yeah. Um, you know, going through all of that to actually get to the point where you have an exhibition and you like you're showing it, and it's really hard today with like the COVID stuff. But like, still, I think that space of like physically organizing a show and taking responsibility for it, you're not just doing the like the thing on Instagram anymore, like the single post. You're actually yeah. trying to create curate something and bring it together. Um, I, th- I think that's really important. Um, I think it's also really important to just take photos and just do the work, um, and and kind of just put it together. You know, like whatever it is, whether it's like a small zine or like a booklet or something and, you know, give it out to your friends or show it to people. Cause like, 
honestly, man, I get people follow me sometimes on Instagram and I, I, I you know, I look through every, every, everyone who takes the time to follow me, I'm going to have a look at their stuff. Right. And, you know, maybe I, I don't really care how many followers I are, but every now and then I like see one and maybe they had the, you know, they're just starting out, but I'm like, man, this is really great. Mm-hmm. I'm going to follow that person, but I'm going to tell them, look, this is really good stuff. Keep going. Um, because yeah, you just, it, it just takes one really good, you know, image when you start out and someone to sort of be like, wow, you know, that, that, that can define your style, right? It's like in, earlier on. Um, and I think people just maybe need a bit of encouragement as well. Um, but yeah, you just got to keep going, I guess. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, just the yeah. idea of curating your own work and building out these collections is quite important because then you learn the process of not just taking the picture, but also assembling them in collections, which is quite important to tell a story. Yeah. Yeah, that, it really is um, bringing it together and just having like folder structures and stuff so you can like go through and see all your stuff um, and, and kind of yeah, editing it um, and, and developing, developing a process that works for you that's reproducible. So like having a, a system, you know, like when I go and take photos, like as soon as I get back, you know, I'm, upload, I'm, I'm loading the, copying the photos, backing them up, putting them into like a folder structure that I have mm-hmm. developed Um and it, it just makes me feel like I've completed that process. Um, if I didn't do that, I'd feel a bit uncomfortable, <laughs> you know? So, um, yeah, having, having some process today and learning from people, you know? Um, yeah. Just going a bit deeper into that process of curation, yeah. I wanted to talk about how you cur- curated your own books, Danchi Dreams and Bangkok Phosphors, because it's not just about taking the photos like we discussed, but actually assembling it and then having that Kickstarter campaign to actually produce the book. How long in advance do you actually know that you're going to make a book out of this? I, ne- I never know um, until I do it. Um, <laughs> um, so in terms of, I guess, the, the entire project, um, it just, it hits me. And I li- it's again, it's that little voice. It says, oh, you got to do this. Um, and it ta- at the expense of anything else, like um, maybe normal, like more sane people would just say, oh, yeah, that's, that's a good idea, but let's just shelve that for the moment. But I'm like, oh, I have to do it. So I listened to that voice and I, cause I never intended on doing a book about Bangkok. I was like, oh, I just went there for a few days and I was like, wait a minute, I, I'm going to just stay here a bit longer and do something. Cause it just spoke to me. Um, so I was, I was operating on quite a short time frame for that, but with Danchi, it was like probably a period of about a year when I was just floating and shooting, I was just taking photos and then it slowly started to coalesce. Um, I had a few pivotal conversations with my mentor and a few other people and I was like, okay, cool. There's a story here that I need to tell because no one else is going to do it. Um, and so that sort of just began the snowball of of kind of bringing it together. And I've, I've always found with things like that, um, the exhibition was actually the first thing. I, I didn't actually think about the book until I had already begun to organize the exhibition. But getting a venue was really important. So like... In Tokyo, it's really hard to get a, a venue for stuff like you got to pay quite a lot of money for it, and it's it's yeah, it's it's just quite a competitive space. So I, I was like, okay, I really I've got I've got these images of these public housing projects. Can I find a place to show them to people? And I really wanted to have somewhere that was like going to speak to the images. And so when you start thinking like that, I, I don't know how it works, but it's like people start to kind of get on the same wavelength as you because they're like, oh, you know, you you it's kind of like I don't know, subliminal or something, but you're like, you're thinking about something you want to do. And then people who have that thing will come into your life. And so I met these people and they were running a small artist studio 
kind of out of one of these old buildings and it was exactly like a dance and they were like oh man you can just do your exhibition here for like free pretty much um which is quite unheard of like that's not very common in japan to have a free a free space like that so i was like wow okay cool so that that only kind of happened though as i began the journey like i think if i hadn't have already begun to do it that wouldn't have come into my life um and so that kind of came together and then everything just kind of like just came together man i don't know it's like gravitational it just works and it's very stressful like don't get me wrong like you it's a lot of work you know running around um sometimes i think man if i still got the energy for this but you know running around getting prints and like you know you always think oh man i wish i had like an assistant who was like me but just like a small version of me who could just go and do this stuff (laughs) but but, uh, it's not like that you just gotta do it yourself right um that said though i was sorry sorry? no go ahead oh go ahead go ahead yeah, I was just gonna say I was I was very lucky that my wife Rena, she's very helpful. She's I mean she's kind of like a small version of me, but no, no, she's uh, <laughs> she's got her own thing going. But she she was able to help me out with a lot of that stuff, and she was like, it was her idea to actually be like, oh, you should um you should do a Kickstarter, Cody. And I was like, oh man, who's gonna no, who's gonna support that man? I don't know that many people, blah blah blah. But yeah, I did it, and it and it worked, you know. So um, yeah, I, I don't know, man. It, it's I, I, I'm still I guess formulating that process of it, but it um it definitely worked. No, it definitely has. Most definitely has. And yeah. it's amazing. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting thing because from the outside, it always looks like the artist has everything figured out. But then obviously when you're describing it, a lot of the, there are a lot of uncertainties and things that even you have no control over. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's chaos, man. Like, I, And I love it because I operate in that space, right? Like, um, you know, just making shit happen. And um, I, I think that's probably my skill set because you know I'm not, I'm not particularly smart or anything like that, but like I managed to just have the tenacity to like somehow I don't know maybe it's the farmer in me, but like just mm. keep going, you know, keep at it, and um, it, it kind of starts to to work its way, you know, it starts to happen, and I think the more you do it, you get more efficient as well. True. Um, because now I'm like I probably don't have the energy to do it the way I did back then, but I, I can still get the same outcome because I've kind of done it enough now. So yeah, it's, it's definitely like maybe from the outside, it's, you got to be ready for some, some hard work for sure. Um, And you have to kind of be, and I guess you have to really enjoy doing stuff that's difficult. Yeah. I don't know that probably for yourself, you know, it's probably, um, you know, a lot of people take that for granted, you know, of course you've got to work hard, but it's not going to come to you on a silver platter because if it does, you've probably, there's there's going to be a cost associated with that and by that not, maybe not a financial cost but if it comes to you too easy you know then that's when you're the justin bieber getting shoulder tapped and saying okay we're going to make you famous but at what cost you know because you're never going to not be you know baby baby right you're always going to be that guy whereas if you go and you do it the hard way you learn early on and you work out who you want to be and who you are um and then you're not you're not trying to like build uh, you know kind of re- replace it in you know an image of who you were um if, if you know what i mean like no um, that makes yeah. complete sense because i mean i almost look at it like if you look at actors or actresses that are really well known for one particular role versus people who have a very very broad career over decades i think that's a great parallel yeah. because sometimes people get typecast into a particular role whereas others are able to reinvent themselves and yeah and and i remember um is it, is it Christopher Lee? I think um, so one of, some, some, some actor was talking and, and it was like, you know, the worst thing that can happen to a young actor is to get famous straight away. Mm, that that is know, Christopher Lee, yeah. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> but um, 
Yeah. So I, I don't know, man, like, I, I, cause I definitely, in the early days, I was like, man, I just want to be famous, you know, but um, definitely like that didn't happen and I'm not that, and I can't be that, you know, cause um, I'm too honest. Um, I think um, you, at the end of the day, like um, you've got to be true to yourself, you know, and I, I think for certain spaces, like maybe fashion, you know, like God forbid I ever shoot the Vogue cover image, but you know, um, that's sort of, that space, you know, it's like, you know, it takes a certain, a certain kind of person, right? Whereas, you know, for the buildings, it's like, it's just me and the building, you know, there's, it's no, there's no, no one else, you know. Although you never know, you might come up with an alternate Vogue cover focusing on the building. So you never know. Yeah. Well, actually that said, um, I have been working on a new project sort of in the works. This is sort of going deep, but like, um, so I got this small magazine that I run and it's been very, people really love it and I really love working on it and it's sort of I guess my a more playful space so it's called Derive Wanderer magazine mm-hmm. and we've got the 10th 10th edition of it coming up which I've been working on and I've been trying to kind of bring together this idea of um, kind of like old and new and I've actually been shooting some stuff which it will all come out eventually but it's, it's very much um, what I just said about the Vogue fashion cover it's, it's kind of in that space but in a very derive kind of Cody Ellingham way. And I, I say that sort of unironically, um, very nostalgic mm-hmm. take on, um, on, on a few characters actually. So one of the first times I've photographed people um, in, in a very, you know, in a very nostalgic kind of derive, you know, style, um, which I'm, I'm very excited to work in that because it feels like quite a development. Um, so yeah, there, there's some stuff happening there, which is exciting. Well, I'm really looking forward to that then. Yeah. Um, have you been following the NFT space at all and how photography has been getting involved with that? Um, yes, so NFT is uh, interesting. So um, I've had a little bit of a, a tutu, as we would say in New Zealand, um, as a, having a play round. Uh, I did sell uh, a number of NFTs uh, and um, had a bit of an experiment, so I can sort of tick that off my um, my bucket list, I could, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um uh, I well, yeah, I sold a few, I guess, uh, on the bit of the cheaper side, and then one which was, um, you know, on on foundation, um, uh, which was a bit more substantial. But even then, um, mm-hmm. I, I, I kind of developed this concept with my friend Simon. You might might know Simon James French. Uh, he's a musician, friend of mine, and we've kind of tried to bring images and audio and storytelling together okay. into sort of these NFTs. Um, so we have these small series that we call moments. Um, and we got them sitting there. So that the first one has been brought. Someone's brought that. And then the idea is that, you know, each time someone buys another one, it unlocks the rest of the story. Oh, I see. Uh, thus far, yeah, thus far, it hasn't really worked out that way. Um, I guess the space in general, I would say I'm a bit ambivalent about it. Um, I, was, I think there's some potential for it to mature. And that's why I've still got the work sitting there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm hoping, you know, maybe if someone picks it up, they can have a look at it, what we've done with these kind of, small moments that we've created. Um, but I think there's definitely a bit of a, a bit of a market there, but it's, um, it's going through a transformational phase at the moment where people are trying to work out what the value is. Um, for me, if it's not about the storytelling, then I don't really want to know. Mm-hmm. And sort of the stuff that's happening now is very much hyped, very, you know, was it crypto monkeys? Um, the, you know, the, just oh, you of, mean the board apes? Yeah. Oh yeah. So like that, that whole space, you know, I, I think it's interesting, but it's also, um, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm just wearing, you know, I wear the same stuff every day, man. I'm not, I'm not cool enough to do, you know, to do a crypto monkey. So like, I think at the end of the day, like, sorry, and I am saying that ironically, I, I am aware that there's, there's some other stuff in that space, but 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, know, I think just like any other space, there are like really interesting things happening as well as some pretty mundane and repetitive stuff. It's only because it's, let's say, churning at a very, very quick pace compared to other other fields right now. It feels like quite an active space, which is interesting, which is good for the community as an artist. Yeah, I, I think um, a lot of, well, my friends who are doing um, 3D you know, animation stuff and, and cinema 4D and, and whatnot, mm-hmm. you know, a few of them are like, you know, they're, they're making a lot of money, mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of Ethereum on on that. But um, I think, how would, how would you say, at a high level, it, it is, it's an experimental space and everything I do is, it's, it's archaically slow, right? You know, I'm taking photos of 50-year-old buildings, right? So mm-hmm. I think there's probably just a differential in the pace Right. which I find a little bit difficult to deal with. And then secondly, um, the hype culture around it, I find very, I don't, know, I don't want to say disingenuous, but it's like, it's not, it's not me, you know, I'm just like, Hey, this is me. And this is what I do trying to hype up my stuff. It's, it's not really my, you know, maybe someone, maybe my sm- small version of me could do that, but like, <laughs> I, I, I find it challenging to do that. Yeah. Um, so my hope long-term, because I do think NFT technology is really great and I've got, um, I, I think there's um, some real potential long-term for using that, you know, in terms of smart contract stuff for, you know, property registrations or, you know, different kind of technology applications. Yeah. Um, in terms of the art space, though, man, who, who knows? Um, I, I I don't know. <laughs> now, that's the thing. I think for me personally, the biggest, let's say, plus side to this entire movement has been that I've come across so many new artists that I wouldn't have come across previously. And mm. that just opens myself up to a whole new world of artists who are creating in different mediums and different styles. Some of them, of course, are quite clearly ripping each other off and creating redundant artwork from that. But still. Yeah, I guess my, yeah, my concern would be that in that space, again, it's, it's very performative, right? You're, you're trying to just show and get the hustle and get the retweet so that someone sees it right. And I guess my intention with the the NFTs that we put up, which are still sitting there, was that, no, can we slow this down a bit? You know, because the world's already fast enough as it is. You know, if you sit there, like the, the way we've got it, they're like um, little short stories. So they're about like a minute long. And you got to, you know, you sit there and the text kind of rolls up, you know, shows up on, on, on the image, on the animation. But you got to sit there and slow down and read it. You know, like it's not that fast. And everything else, though, it's so kind of spastic and, and, and fast moving mm-hmm. that, um, I'd rather just sort of not, you know, it's it's just too too much almost a sensory overload, and yeah. it's almost like the 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 image making has become this like, you know, images are, are cheap, you know, creative art is cheap. It's just like creating images um, and throwing them out there and seeing what happens, and um, it's problematic. And in a way, so I I would maybe conceptually liken it to say the modern art movement with say. Um, you know, quite expressive painting and things where it's like, there's no real subject matter. It's just, you know, drops of paint mm-hmm. on, on a, on a, on a wall, which really emerged as a, I guess, a, a response to the mechanization and the kind of technology. Right. So in a way, you know, the, the Andy Warhol or the, um, uh, you, you know, the kind of that, that postmodern pop art sort of space, you know, then the way the NFTs are, are the same thing, but for our generation, yeah. um, very easy and cheap to make and and ultimately meaningless but reflective of a deeper zeitgeist in society and the kind of the journey and which maybe that journey is what i'm trying to photograph you know the decline of civilization yeah i mean i it, i think 
the concept especially that you were talking about where after the purchase of a particular moment of nft the next one gets unlocked i think those kind of possibilities are something that can be really harnessed in mm. this space even in terms of non linear storytelling where different people have different versions of the same story and each of them get a different ending i think those kind of things are quite possible yeah that that gives me hope so again you know i'm 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 thinking long term here we've got the stuff sitting there you know maybe we'll, we'll mint another nft sometime but mm-hmm. like um I'm trying to think a bit more long-term with it and, and trying to connect with people who are like-minded, mm. um, you know, because it's not everyone's after the cash grab, right? Um, you know, can we actually use this for creating meaningful stories? That's cool. that's sort of my, my goal, yeah. That's awesome. I'm really looking forward to that. Another particular piece of yours that I wanted to talk about was the Lost World Akan National Park series because that's so different from everything else that you've done and it really stood out to me immediately. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. So that's uh, that's definitely like an older piece of mine, uh, an older series. Um, I had the opportunity to go up to northern Japan for a couple of weeks uh, on two occasions, actually, with a good friend of mine, and he was shooting a um, some some video for a hotel and and a few other um, a few other things. And um, I, I went along, and he invited me along to shoot shoot some stills and kind of a, join him. Um, and then there was another videographer as well, mm-hmm. and we basically stayed up in Hokkaido, which very much reminded me of New Zealand, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's a very beautiful place. Um, we stayed on Lake Akan, which is very beautiful. And um, yeah, that was really much, very much a, an exploration of, of, of nature and in a way connecting kind of with New Zealand as well, kind of channeling that through, um, through these landscapes that I was in. So I look fondly back on that, um, that series um, and that, um, journey, in fact, has gone on to inspire me in a lot of my writing and, and kind of not explicitly, but um, uh, definitely that it was a kind of a turning point for me, that journey. So um, those images of, of those landscapes, um, I, I hold those very dear. And um, the, the, yeah, there's, uh, I don't know what else to say about it, but yeah, it was very special. No, it's interesting. I mean, just from, from my outside perspective, the color grading within those images and the cityscapes there is this commonality between them. You can see that it's been done by the same person. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I, I was definitely, there's a, there's a filmmaker that I really love, uh, Teriyama Shuji, who's uh, long since dead, but uh, he was operating sort of in the seventies, a Japanese filmmaker. And um, he developed, he, he did a couple of films, very avant-garde. Uh, one of them was um, Death in the Countryside, Dan Nishisu, I believe. And um sort of the, the treatment on that it's, it's very experimental very japanese and and it aligns with that kind of 1970s 1980s kind of period that i was very interested in so seeing sort of film that was so experimental because mm-hmm. the stuff today is so cookie cutter and you know generic but back then you know you really had these quite avant-garde guys pushing the boundaries and the color treatment that he used um very much inspired by that um uh to treat my images in that way and i think i actually have like a preset that's just called Teriyama that I created <laughs> I just see. to kind of like, you know, put it, put me into that space. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so a lot of the work that you're doing generally is essentially coming together in a book or a publication mm-hmm. of some sort or an exhibition. Mm-hmm. Do you ever have any smaller series that are going on which just capture a few images or a few moments or does everything serve a larger purpose? I think I'm always looking for the the bigger picture, and I've gotten to the point now where I'm I'm kind of I wouldn't say slowing down, but like I'm 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 collecting things and and letting them simmer okay. for a bit. 
And so with this magazine, which is kind of my, I guess, my experimental area, I'm, I'm, I've spent a long time trying to get to the point where I can create number 10. And that's mm. just been through a series of collection and kind of experimentation. So anything that's not going into like a major project is kind of goes into the experimental box, I guess. I um, and sometimes it sits there for years, you know, and I often go back because I know I'm like that. Now's the time to use that image so I can go back to the archive and pull it out. Um, but I just take photos of everything so that it, I can just go back and find it, you know? So um yeah, I, I do. I do believe um, having like an experimental outlet is really important, mm-hmm. alongside bigger projects. Do you ever plan to move into the cinematography space and the filmmaking space? Because obviously, you have the eye for capturing spaces, but then taking it to that level. So the challenge I have, and I've tried this on a couple of, ca- of occasions, and I, I'm I'd be willing to give it another go. But I, I think the challenge with cinema and video is that you really need more than one person, right? Mm. And um, so it becomes very performative, very theatrical, very, um, you know, it's about organization and, and kind of planning it out and, and all of this stuff, which even though it's from the outside, it seems very similar. I, I think the the freedom of photography is that, you know, I can do that by myself with nothing more than my camera, Um and with, with with video, film, cinema, you know, you've got this kind of whole process to go through um, that kind of gets in the way. And so my alternative to that is actually I, I do quite a lot of writing, which maybe isn't super clear to people because it's, it's a little bit hard to express that. And, and people don't really have the time to read stuff. A lot of people don't have time to read stuff these days. But, like, I consider, like, my main work besides the photography is really the, the, the writing and the storytelling. So a lot of mm-hmm. um, short stories and fiction uh, which come through in my magazine, but that's really in my storytelling area. So if I was to make a movie, it would be probably based off one of those short stories. And I don't know if I could even be the director for that. Cause it's like such a mission to organize people, mm. you know, and um, just being involved. Like I have been involved in a few projects like that. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's not quite the same like flow state as trying to shoot photos where you can just go and do it. Like to be an auteur, as they say, you kind of need all of this scaffolding around you so that people make it happen. Right. So to be like a, a, you know, a director like that, you kind of already have to be in that space and the people who try to make it in that space, you know, it takes years to get there. Right. And so I don't, I don't know, man, it's, um, it's a hard one. I have done some little short experimental video projects and I do love working in that space. Um, I've done a bit of 3d stuff in that space, but, um, yeah, I, I, I always come back to the simplicity of photography it's like fly fishing you just go out on the river and you just do it you know Hmm. yeah that's a good analogy i mean it really requires a lot of logistical ingenuity to put a team together and get your vision across and it's not that simple you got to be a businessman yeah you got to be a business person as well and you got to be able to sell it and like um yeah i I can kind of sell i'm kind of okay at selling myself but it's also like um to even get it over the line, you know, you mm-hmm. need to be this certain thing. And, and people shoot stuff down all the time, you know. And so I think the day, the golden age of the auteur filmmaker is almost over in a way because it's like unless it's going to go on Netflix or unless it's going on Amazon, you know, it's no one's going to support it. Um, whereas in the old days, you know, you kind of had this, this, you know, th- these films that just lost so much money. You know, I'm a big fan of Andrei Tarkovsky. You might be familiar, the mm-hmm. Soviet filmmaker. I don't think he made any money on any of his projects. They're all just like these big things that just cost a lot of money to make. But 
you know, it was it was about the art form. Yeah. And I think in the modern in the world we live in today, the the, the video art form, music videos, all of that stuff, um, it's become highly commodified. Um, I, that's not to say I don't like it. I love it. You know, there's some really great stuff out there. But um, if I can support other people to do it, that would be great. Um, but for myself, I'm probably I, I don't know. I, I I I'd struggle to do it. But we'll see. Maybe I, maybe one day. Yeah, I guess it almost <laughs> excuse me. It almost comes down to whether you yourself trust a vision that you have, which you can execute in that format. Because having done photography for so many years, you know what you want exactly. And even if it's not that precise, you can still derive an idea from a very tiny thought process. Whereas in That's filmmaking, right. I guess you need to get more experience to push it to that point. Yeah, and and I think definitely if I mean I, I got some really talented friends operating in that space, um, and they do an amazing job. But I think um, yeah, they're, they're, maybe I'm I'm an introvert, a little bit too much of an introvert, perhaps. Um, but engaging with, you know, interfacing with, um, you know, cast and, and producers and things. It's, it's it's a lot of work and it's very logistical work, right? Mm. Um, whereas if I can focus purely on just the creation side and then, you know, a little bit of the, the other stuff, then that, that's good, you know? Um, I definitely just wanted to touch upon your camera gear and equipment as well before yes. finishing the conversation because I think that's a very essential part of the work that you do. Um mm. What are the cameras or lenses that you generally work with? And do you have a preferred focal length that you prefer shooting with? Yeah, sure. So look, um, straight away, I'll say like, I'm a big fan of, of Sony mirrorless cameras. Um, I've got two, in fact, um, Sony Alpha 7 uh, R2 and an R4. Um, uh, the R2 I've taken all over the world. Um, the R4 I've only had for a little while, but um, both of them are super amazing. Um, I uh, I got a lot of my friends onto them as well. Um, they're just with low light, um, they're just so amazing to work with. Um, and they do everything else. Like if you want to do video, um, if you want to do, um, you know, other stuff, they're very versatile. So those are my, the cameras I work with. Um, I always, or well, pretty much all the time I'm using a tripod. So mm -hmm. I have a, a Jitsu, uh, Jitsu tripod, um, with like a ball head um, uh, mount, um, and I can you know carry that with me everywhere, um, all all ten kgs of it. Um, and then with the lenses, I really only have two lenses that I use, which are the twenty four and the fifty millimeter uh, tilt shift architecture lenses. Mm -hmm. um, I would say ninety percent of my photos, ninety five percent are with the fifty mil. Okay. Um, in fact, I just leave that on there the whole time, uh, just with a Metabones adapter. Um, because uh, it's not a native Sony uh, mount. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much all of my photos. And then the 24 is great for a little bit wider, kind of, just, you know, to get a little bit more in. And then every so often, I might use um, something a bit longer. So I previously, I have had like a zoom lens, um, like a, a 7105. Um, now I have like a like an 85. Mm -hmm. um, which is um, every so often maybe there's just a detail that I want to pick up on, but I, I'd say for like my my main work and and my architectural work, it's primarily the 50 millimeter, and it's just um, so beautiful, fully manual the the lens that I have um, tilt shift, um, and it just it's so simple, you know, it just it weighs it weighs quite a lot, but it's it's so great. So um yeah, that's that's what I shoot with. Um, very basic. I just throw it all in my bag and just walk around and. And bust it out and take photos yeah oh, i like the simplicity of your equipment it's not one of those 
shelves filled with multiple lenses and constantly well, I used to have I used to have a bit more stuff like um I used to have like a drone and a few other things but you know I just got rid of it all like mm. um I just um you know I'm, I'm kind of like I don't know is it like Stanley Kubrick or something like I, he had like his one lens that he really liked like I've got the one lens and then the other one that I really like mm-hmm. um and that's what I shoot with and it like every feature of it just the even the just the way the light looks just it, it's it's me Mm-hmm. and I can trust that that's going to be what I need it to be. So um, I'm really happy with those, and I'll keep using those forever, I think. Like, um, I don't see myself changing. Do you ever experiment with filters within the lenses itself to capture light differently natively in the camera? I um, I do have a couple of filters that I might use on the daytime, just like um, um, uh, neutral density filters. But um, generally speaking, man, I just shoot everything as is. I don't have any filters on the lens. Okay. Um I, I, in fact, I, I could, I mean, I have literally like, I use the same settings for every photo. It's like F11. Um, it's a very long, uh, what do you call it? Small, small aperture. Like, so everything's kind of in focus. And then depending on the, um, the, uh, the how dark it is, I guess, um, it's like maybe half a second through to a couple of second exposure and ISO 100. So it's like, those are the settings. Um, you know, feel free to use them if you want, you know, anyone listening, but like that, that's what I shoot with. And the, the thing I like about that though, is it means every image I, I've taken for like the last couple of years, is kind of like in the same universe, mm-hmm. you know, that's it's like they're all the same, same look. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the great part about having that vision free figured out or conceptualized in your mind, because then you know exactly what you want to shoot rather than trying to figure out while trying, while shooting, like what exactly you want. Yeah, and I think that's where, like, the, the, you touched on earlier, like, the stylistic, you know, like, what filters you use and whatnot. Like, at the end of the day, like, um, you know, every photo I take is pretty much the same settings, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, the same. It's the placement, you know, I'm, I'm placing the, the camera and, and and whatnot, but it's the concept into what images I'm actually trying to show. What what story am I trying to tell? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, the yeah, the, just the consistency of having you know generally speaking i'm knowing kind of what i how i need to operate the camera technically you know because there's cases where i do different stuff but most of the time it's the same sort of feel um and then that means you know i can develop things so i've got some techniques that i've developed where say i'm laying out a book the left hand image and the right hand image on the page they're actually two different places but because i always use the same sort of settings and the same camera height Mm -hmm. they actually can often connect together and so with um, bangkok phosphors in particular i was able to connect like a a photo of a highway with like a maybe a photo of um you know just like a small alleyway or something and and kind of lines and the the, the kind of the geometry of it all lines up Mm -hmm. really nicely um so it's kind of like almost like concept art so it kind of it all just works yeah um and i can lay all yeah, I can kind of lay them out and they all sort of fit because they're all shot the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it makes it a little bit easier. And then every so often, maybe I have one that's, you know, kind of off and it's not quite the same. And that one can be used to kind of penetrate a bit of rhythm. So it's it's almost like a, you set the rhythm of the story by the way you shoot it. Fascinating. I mean, these are great insights yeah. into the process of actually putting these things together. Because when you look at the book at the end of the day, you don't really... You may or may not pick up on these things, but actually hearing about it is quite interesting. Oh, yeah. I mean, I spend hours looking at, like, when, when I was editing editing my book, it was like, yeah, it's hours looking mm-hmm. at every image, like, trying to make it all work and just kind of considering it all. So, it, it definitely, um, it, yeah, it, every, everything's thought, thought out and um, considered, and it's really important to do that, I think. Mm-hmm. 
well i just want to leave you with one last question you obviously spoke about the longer vision that you have for your photographs over the next couple of decades but beyond mm-hmm. that what are the other projects that you feel like you want to work on do you have long term goals that you think about or is it more of a moment to moment figuring stuff out so at this point in time you know it's it's a little bit of a difficult situation in new zealand uh, and globally you know i think um the world's facing a really uh, difficult time um as we enter this kind of new, brave new world of uh, government control of every aspect of our life. And I think I'm not really sure what the future holds, to be honest. Um, I kind of was a little bit more idealistic earlier in the year, but just with the way things are going, um, I hope that we're going to be able to all get through this. But at the same time, um, whatever happens, you know, I'm going to be taking photos and documenting the way things unfold. And um, I'm already seeing some opportunities for that, you know, just, you know, socially in, in New Zealand, you know, I'll be working on this New Zealand housing project, but just a lot of issues are beginning to emerge and the kind of role of documentary photography almost, because I've, I've never considered myself, a, you know, documentative in that sense, but actually just taking the photos of what's going on, you know, is really important. And it, we live in such a mediated culture, that um, you know, a photo can kind of tell the truth, but it can also not. It's like this fake news thing. It's so I, I think having longer term, you know, I think continuing to to take images, to tell stories, to connect with people, um, and and hopefully get to go out and, and see some more of the world. You know, um, I, one of my goals actually was uh, to go to somewhere like Iran. I was looking at an artist residency project there. I'd love to photograph Tehran and some of those beautiful um, uh, Persian architecture and, and that. Um, you know, I'd love to come to India. There, there's a few places which I haven't been, which I'd love to go and explore, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, the history of, of places through architecture and, and images. So I'm, I'm hoping and I'm praying that we can all sort of go and do that and we can all hang out and, and go and explore, but um, we'll, we'll see. It's awesome, man. I mean, if you do come to India, let me know. We should definitely meet up. No, um, yeah, no, for sure, man. I, I mean, I've um, I've had a lot of friends go there. I got some of my best friends are actually from India, and um, I, I think just culturally, um, in fact, actually, um, Delhi in particular is uh, a place that I'm very interested in. Just sort of the, I believe the there's kind of like the old city, mm-hmm. um, and then there's the new city, right? So it's quite clearly delineated, and I'd love to just explore. Some one of the alleys and and that city and kind of connect and, and find the, the the common the commonality um and, and whatnot so yeah man definitely that would be a dream mind but we'll just see how it all unfolds i guess awesome dude well thank yeah. you for this amazing conversation cody it was really fun yes. talking about your process and just learning more about the way you go about things really yeah my pleasure thank you very much awesome have a great day ahead Bye-bye. all right sweet mate i'll see you later